Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a discussion with Douglas Wilson, Indy Wilson, and Alan Jacobs about his book, The Narnian. Alan, welcome to Moscow. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. Um, I wanted to begin by um, uh, something you say on the first page of The Narnian, uh, where you're, it's not so much a biography of Lewis as it is a biography of Lewis's imagination. Right. Is that right? Which is a much bigger subject than (laughs) Lewis Lewis himself. Yes, it is. Is that fair? Um, When you, what, what made you uh, first think of undertaking a biography of somebody's imagination? Um, someone offered me money to do so. Um, this and goes back to Samuel Johnson's comment that yeah, no one wrote except for money. No, no one but a blockhead, blockhead ever wrote except for money. Um, and and the, I have to admit that because it's true. Um, but it, it led in some interesting directions because when uh, Mickey Maudlin, uh, uh, editor at Harper, uh, wanted a book on Lewis. He wanted something that had a significant biographical dimension to it. But he wanted it to be connected in some way to the forthcoming film of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which uh, was, uh, in fact, uh, my contract was written very neatly so that uh, every month that I missed my deadline, my uh, advance would go down because they wanted that book out before the movie came out. And I had never written under those circumstances before, and I wasn't sure that um, I wanted to write under those circumstances. And in fact, I took quite a long time trying to decide whether I wanted to do it. Because the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to be in in a situation where I was having to write a book that I didn't believe in. Um, And uh, what ultimately convinced me uh, was um, a pretty thorough rereading of all of the Narnia stories, and um, especially one in particular, rereading The Magician's Wardrobe, <laughs> Magician's Wardrobe, The Magician's Nephew. I, I, just, I just created a new Lewis book there. We brought in the expert. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there's that lion in there, I, I can't, or is he a tiger? I can't remember. Um, With a Y. I had reread The Magician's Nephew right after rereading uh, two other books of Lewis's, uh, The Abolition of Man and his great history of English literature in the 16th century. Excluding drama. Excluding drama. <laughs> uh, and and it, I was stunned. Uh, I suppose I should have noticed it before, but I was stunned by the extent to which the themes in The Magician's Nephew echoed themes that he had articulated for different audiences and in different contexts in these other two books. And at that moment, it became clear to me, I suppose, again, something I should have realized before, but it became clear to me just how unified a thing Lewis's imagination is. Owen Barfield says somewhere that what Lewis thought about everything was contained in what he said about anything. That's exactly something right. Like that. and, that's, and I quote that in, the, in the, the preface because I thought, yeah, that's exactly it that there is this kind of unity of purpose and unity of vision which could find expression in many different literary forms. And once I realized that, I thought, that's my task. My task is to explore and understand that unified imaginative vision. So um, you just used the phrase unitive uh, imaginary, uh, imaginative vision. So you're, you're looking for something deeper 
than simply uh, a collection of propositions yeah. in what might be called a, a worldview, you know, a worldview of dogmatic assertions. There's a unified field of his imagine. He's got an imaginative yeah. world that's unified, which contains, I think, many or the seeds of many of uh, many ideas which can be developed in propositional form. Uh, but but it, it, I think it is somewhat deeper than that. Right. So Lewis is not at war with propositions in some no, postmodern no. sense. He, no, he, no, he's the last person in the world who would be uh, at war with propositions in that sense. But I think Lewis also understood. I think he understood, as Augustine understood, that uh, propositions are powerful and our assent to them is powerful, but is not definitive. Okay. That is, something more in us has to assent than whatever that faculty is that adjudges a particular proposition to be true. Augustine, long after Augustine had uh, ceased to have any objections to the Christian faith, he remained an unbeliever. Um, something deeper in him had to assent to it. And I think much the same thing happened to Lewis. All of his objections were undermined, and right. he was still in this in-between state. How would you relate that to his um, point that he develops in The Abolition of Man, where um, modern man is, has been robbed of his ability to feel correctly, yeah. not, not in the sense of rootless feelings, but right. to respond correctly right. at a... At a a level that's not just intellectual, men without chests. Right. Uh, you know, how, would Lewis have described himself as a man without a chest in that period before he yeah, came? I, I think the way that Lewis would describe himself is as a man who was trying very hard to amputate his own chest. <laughs> that is, he was someone who had uh, powerful uh, emotional and instinctual responses, which he had come to believe it was his job to mistrust and to extinguish if he could. Right. I mean, you know, that was Lewis's misunderstanding of what philosophy was, which he later owned to be a misunderstanding. That is, he thought philosophy meant becoming the sort of person who calculates rationally without any reference to anything that is uh, sort of surging up from within, an instinctual and, and, and uh, sort of pre-rational response. He thought those are untrustworthy, and uh, much of that, as he would phrase it in letters to his father, among other people, which was interesting before he even became a Christian, was that he felt that this was the Celt in him. You know, this was the Irish side of him that was emotionally out of control and that that had to be ruthlessly suppressed. And, and that ruthless suppression, I think, becomes a kind of an amputation or an excision of something that is actually essential to a healthy person's well-being. And that's what he had to learn. He had to learn, and you know, he had several teachers in this, uh, so, some in books and some uh, his, his actual day-to-day -day friends. He had to learn to heed, maybe not always to obey, but at least to heed and to take seriously those instinctual, I think what he would later call imaginative responses. So treat it with respect. Not, it's not infallible. But Any more than reason is. Right. Yeah, but it's, but it's an integral part of the person that A, needs to be paid attention to, and B, needs to be cultivated so that it becomes healthier. You know, that's actually one of the things that always all of his protagonists tend to go through mm -hmm. that process, whether mm -hmm. it's Till We Have Faces or the Space Trilogy or, mm -hmm. or anything. It's always mm -hmm. a character who starts in a place where Lewis very much was. Right. And right. then they end up rationally somewhere, and then after rationally they end yeah. up yeah. Know, with, a, with a total 
resonation yeah. Yeah. you know with with everything but it takes a while for that to yeah. happen and sometimes a point of crisis in order yeah, you know absolutely. for that to happen i mean it's a, you know with with your work on the great divorce the great divorce is very interesting in this regard because it's so much about people's responses they're yeah. sort of how how do they manage their instinctual responses to an environment which they don't understand yeah really the great divorce is very often just about how much reason is not the tipping right. point for right. people. That's right. You know, the reason yeah. is a tool, reason is a gift, but it is yeah. not the tipping point. Right. It's, in, it's not what's decisive in, in any of the yeah. fates of the people there, I don't think. Yeah, no, yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. So at the end of Lewis's life, he describes himself somewhere as an old Western man. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. but when you read the early Lewis, back when he's busy trying to extinguish the Celtic flame, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I regard Lewis as sort of the quintessential modern man. Yeah. You know, he was um, sort of, it's the capstone of modernity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, the modern civilization had not yet um, mm -hmm. suffered its crisis of confidence in the First World War. Right. Uh, it, you know, they were on top of the world and were going right. uh, And Lewis is very much, he buys into that. Sure. And there's a, trans, there's a transition that appears to be, uh, obviously, the the hinge is his conversion to Christ, but there's a whole mm -hmm. lot more going on before that and then yeah. after that yeah. that transforms him from a modern man to right. an old Western man. Right, right. Is that a fair statement? I think that's fair to say. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, uh, I suggested a moment ago that one of the ways to think about it is uh, that Lewis, he, he, well, let me, let, me, let me put it in a different way. For Lewis, rejecting that Celtic side of him, which he feels is emotionally out of control and imaginatively out of control, was associated with dismissing literature as well. That is, you know, seeing his love of literature as something which was, again, if not to be extinguished, at least to be kept in a, a little box so that it couldn't get out of control. And then he was going to replace that with philosophy. But what he was being told by his wiser friends, even when he was going through that process, was... Oh, if you think that's what philosophy is, you don't understand philosophy either. And he, he in Surprised by Joy, he tells the story on himself of uh, when he was sitting with a couple of friends and talking about philosophy as a subject. Uh, and one of them was Barfield. And Barfield says, but, you know, you're talking about Plato. And to Plato, philosophy wasn't a subject, it was a way. And, and, it was a world. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and for Lewis, he, 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 I think he just felt his own shallowness at that <laughs> moment that he was... So you know, many people will say, well, he went from philosophy to literature, and that's not really true because what he ended up doing was having to rethink what philosophy is as well so that, and look for a philosophy. For instance, the Aristotelian model that can take account of our range of responses and not just the purely rational response. So would you say it's fair that Lewis, in his, he wasn't able to do this to the, to the West, right. but in his own thinking... Would you say that Lewis abandoned the idea of an English department, a philosophy department, um, you know, where he said, let's just yeah. break out of that and, and consider life as an integrated? Yeah, I think, I think you know, professionally, that would, it would have been suicidal for him to do that, obviously. Yes. <laughs> but I think personally, that's what he did. Um, and in, his, if, in his writings. In his writings, example. yeah, over and over again. I mean, again, think about... This one of his, um, what, one of his, uh, what, one of the real, but when I was talking earlier about the magician's nephew, the idea that I was linking with these other two books is Lewis's development of the, the relationship between science and magic. And 
he points out that for us, science and magic seem completely opposite endeavors. He said, but if you go back to, for instance, Francis Bacon, Francis Bacon actually had great respect for the intellectually serious magicians of his time. He said their aim is noble because like the scientist, the magician is attempting to exercise control over the natural world. Okay. okay. Now, oh, one, one little addition to that. That is a point which is simultaneously a historical, a, uh, a philosophical, and a theologically weighted point, which he can present through historical scholarship, through uh, more or less philosophical reflection and through the narration of a children's story. <laughs> right? So if you can have that same idea and it can be manifested in all those different ways, it suggests that he's not really interested in our conventional disciplinarian genre distinctions. Is this the point where I look in the camera and say, no, don't try that at all? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you, you, might, you, might you can try it, but yeah, the likelihood of success is not high for something like that. You know, jump, jumping back to something you said about uh, he was trying to amputate, amputate his chest or yeah. fighting against the, the Celt in him. Yeah. And I think that was particularly adolescent. Yeah. Like that was part of him, him mm -hmm. struggling with coming of age because mm -hmm. he loved it as a child. Yeah. And even as an adolescent, it, it remained right. for him sort of a vice right. more than anything else. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you think about the way Wagner affected him, mm -hmm. whatever we think of Wagner. Right. You know, for, for Lewis, it was yeah. more northernness, more of the, That's right. you know, more of the appeal right. to the Celt in him. Right. And that continued on throughout. So he continued yeah. to be inspired by it. That's right. And then at the, but at a turning point, he began to sort of dig deeper into the redemption of it. So right. Culminated yeah. in, in sitting in a pub with Tolkien. Right. Defending the thrillers, the pulps. Right. For the That's, masses, yep, like yep. getting all the way back to... As yeah. Chesterton had done before him, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, well, there's, there's several interesting aspects to that. One is that, you know, he, he, his stages are interesting. You know, when he's a child and a, and a teenager, those moments in which, and it just, it happens to be northernness, it could have been something else, but those experiences of art that would completely sweep him away yeah. were what he wanted more than anything in the world, yeah. right? Then he comes to the point where he thinks, well, to be an intellectually serious young man, I have to repudiate that. Yeah. And, and so he... Or at least his reaction to it. That's right. That, yeah, that yeah, that's reaction. right. The, that's yeah. right. The reaction itself is, is dangerous and, and, and out of control. And, and so then he circles back to it. But when he circles back to it, now he has to think, okay, if this is authentic and this is serious, how is it related to my move towards Christianity? And, and yeah. that's really what Surprised by Joy is about. More than anything else, it's about how does he reconfigure those experiences so that he can say, yes, they are valuable, but they're not valuable in the way that I thought they were when I was 16 years old. You know, that they have yeah. another meaning which I can now discern in light of, uh, of Christianity. And, and what, that has the really fascinating effect, I think, of making him a kind of a lifelong advocate for whatever kinds of books you read that light your fire, you yeah. know? And it might be uh, very uh, similar, his attitude is very similar to that of Chesterton in his little essay in defense of the penny dreadful, yeah. right? You know, where he says, yeah, okay, these are not literature, he said, but these books are the actual center of a million flaming imaginations. And, and Lewis wants to see the kernel of authenticity and power in that kind of response and not repudiate it, but rather redeem it. 
And that's the way, it, when he's, one of his very last books, An Experiment in Criticism, he, he talks about the, uh, the adults sitting downstairs and, and talking very learnedly about the, the, the recent works of literature, which they know they're supposed to love, right, or at least yeah. supposed to respect. And he says, but the only real experience, reading experience that's going on in that house is there's a little boy upstairs who's reading Treasure <laughs> Island with the covers over his head and a flashlight, you know. That's yeah. the only reading actually going on in that house. So here he is, a 60-something-year-old man, yeah. defending and celebrating yeah. that kind of reading. I mean, as far as the conver even the conversion story went for him, he was approaching Christianity as a philosophy, as a list of propositions. Right. And it was Tolkien who was saying, no, you have to see it as a story. This is a that's myth, right. capital M. Myth. That's right. That's and right. It was, you know, that's really how the barrier started to come down yeah. for him when he yeah. was willing to process it and receive right. it as a story. Right, exactly. So speaking of uh, the redemption of odd things and, <laughs> um, and Lewis's extraordinarily Catholic uh, literary tastes, mm -hmm. he was... He was uh, omnivorous in his... Yes, they, except for and, Walt Disney. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Oh. yeah what? He, there was even some Walt Disney that he liked, uh, you know, or at least had a grudging respect for. Well, what I, what I want to ask, uh, because uh, and I want, it's interesting that our discussion up to this point on imagination yeah. has led us to this point, because I know that you've also written quite a bit um, on the intersection between technology and Christian faith. Yeah. And so I... I I didn't bring my iPhone on the table here because I was expecting a call or anything. I wanted to wave it around okay. and ask if C.S. Lewis would have had one of oh, these. Yeah. Um, Heavens no. Would C.S. Lewis have been sending us his tweets? Yeah. Would see, um, and, um, Eventually. And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the question, I, there's a story told about Tolkien yeah. who was um, prevailed upon to record something on a yeah. One of those old style tape recorders, yeah, yeah. and um, and he said the Lord's Prayer in Gaelic into the tape recorder first to exercise the demon <laughs> yeah, right. of the machine, the, the demon yeah, of, of the machine. machine. He That's wanted right. to get that out of there. Yeah. Well, but this is um, is this an imaginative an imaginative work? Uh, is are there a thousand blazing mm. imaginations uh, on the internet? What's the how would how would Lewis writing fan fiction? Uh, writing, writing fan, fan fiction. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that has captured that little boy's imagination. How yeah. how do we? Um, it, it seems to me that in the in the Lewis fan base, the Lewis Tolkien fan base, mm -hmm. there is the Luddite wing, right, right, yeah. um, that wants to be the old Western man in mm -hmm. the sense of let's let's mm -hmm. go back to that. Mm -hmm. Then there's the adapt uh, the adaptation approach, which Lewis right. himself seems to take, where he, mm -hmm. when you read the Space Trilogy, it's basically everything in the discarded image, right. except for the geographical plotting. You know, he doesn't yeah, have this, right. he doesn't have Dante-like spheres. Right. He has a modern cosmology right. with a midi married to yeah. a medieval internal working of right. the, the cosmology. Right. Right. Um, how adaptable do you think Lewis would have been. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that he, in selected literary essays, he has a section where he's talking about uh, our generation mm -hmm. thinks in terms of progress, progress, progress. The one mm -hmm. product replaced right. by another product, right. replaced by another one. Right. And he said that that frame of mind was alien, right? You know, to most people, mm -hmm. uh, most people throughout all history. And then I've, I was thinking about our circumstance where 
some new product comes out, you know, some new right. operating system or new right. phone or that right. sort of thing. Right. And you've got people like myself thinking, oh, I'm going to wait six months for, right. the, for the upgrade. Or right, I'm gonna, right. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to buy it right now right. because mm -hmm. three months from now, it's not going to be, it be the coolest thing. It, it won't be thing. the coolest, new, newest thing. Yeah. So yeah. Lewis is obviously critical of that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it seems to me that his Catholic approach to stuff mm -hmm. would have necessitated dare I say, the C.S. Yeah. Lewis blog. Yeah. <laughs> you have a blog. I have a blog. Why wouldn't C.S. Yeah, why wouldn't he have a blog? You, don't say, you, know, I, you I, have a blog. I don't blog on it, though. Uh, well, <laughs> and that's an important distinction. I'm just supposed to. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think the first thing we have to, 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 to realize is that Lewis is a man who never reconciled himself to the technology of the zipper. Right? I mean, you know, he, okay. he hated zippers. He said, your pants should be fastened with buttons. They're much more reliable. So, so I, I think we're, we're, we're on the pretty far end of the Luddite spectrum there. Right. And, and, you know, Lewis, he, he, he had the luxury of living uh, with, um, in an environment that wasn't significantly different than it would have been had he lived in it 200 years earlier or 300 years earlier. Right. One of the things that gave him that luxury was that he lived with his brother, and his brother could type. And Lewis rarely touched a typewriter, and I don't think could do much more than peck with one. But Warney was actually a very good typist. And what that meant was that uh, Jack Lewis was able to manage his correspondence. He was able to manage his correspondence because he could have Warney in the next room pounding away on that typewriter. He had a certain, so he could kind of keep the technology at yeah. arm's length and nevertheless take advantage of it. Tolkien, on the other hand, had to type. I mean, he typed, you know, the Lord of the Rings himself. He couldn't afford a typist. He wrote it all by hand and then typed the entire thing himself. He had a much more intimate connection. And I, I, I want to say that I think that has something to do with the fact that Lewis was more interested in science, that is, as a body of thinking. Right. Tolkien was more interested in technology that is uh, the, the, the application of that body of thinking. It's the not tools. that Lewis didn't have, must pardon me? Tools. Yeah, the tools, okay. the tools themselves. Now, Tolkien was very, tended to be very critical. Suspicious of them. Suspicious. Yeah. And, and, but but it, thinking about machines, thinking about tools, thinking about techne is actually more central to Tolkien's mind than it is to Lewis's, I would argue. I mean, he said when people, uh, when, when, uh, people would say, well, The Lord of the Rings is clearly a book about power. Tolkien wrote in several letters, it's actually not about power. It's about three things. Fall, the fall, mortality, and the machine. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it was central. Uh, I think there, there are all sorts of really fascinating reflections on the powers and limits of technology in Tolkien, more so than in Lewis, who tended to think more about science as a way of considering the world and therefore as a way of considering human beings. So when Lewis talks about technology, I, I, I think it's, it, it's not central to his interests. It tends to be relatively marginal. He's really more interested in the ideas that lay behind it. So I, what I would really like, I, I don't know what Lewis would be doing. I would love to hear what he would write about the ways in which we use our technologies because I think he would be very good at diagnosing the habits of mind and thought that underlie the technological decisions that we make. Absolutely, yeah. And he wrote some science fiction, read a lot of science fiction. He, he did, but, you just, but just notice how limited, for two things. First of all, the kind of science fiction that he loved tended to be very 
technologically vague. Yeah. Right. You know. No, that's it's absolutely true. And what I think first, I think Lewis would have had an assistant who had an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. the thing that we see with him is that he found ways to not be tainted by it directly, right. but he he was able to capitalize yeah. on it. Uh, completely otherwise, in a way that Tolkien used it and kind of resented it, I think, yeah. because he had to directly use it. Yeah, that's right. But in the one of the things I've always found really interesting about Tolkien's writing versus Lewis's is that Tolkien is, is obsessed with items. Yeah. You know, the ring, obviously. Right. But then each individual sword. Right. It's like this sword has unique powers and it has it has a history and somebody right. made it and they made it. That's Here's right. where they made it. And that's right. For Lewis, you get through an entire children's fantasy right. series right. and then an adult a fantasy trilogy. Yeah. Without a thing, without a relic, yeah. without a talisman, you know, it's there. Yeah. And and when they're mentioned or they come up, they're not that important. That's right. You know, Peter gets a sword, and what he does with it is he kills a wolf. Yeah, yeah, right. Although I am curious about where Mrs. Beaver got her sewing machine. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that is. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's also. True. I mean, Lewis read the vague books, but he also. Then he wrote vague books. He wrote them. I mean, clearly that. it was from Father Christmas. Yeah. Technology from technology from another world. You know, there's that at, at the beginning, uh, near the beginning, out of the Silent Planet. Uh, uh, you know, Weston says, oh, "You know, we're going to put you on this rocket ship. You won't understand it, but uh, just uh, let me just say that it takes advantage of certain hitherto unobserved properties of yes. solar radiation, which is just totally nonsense." <laughs> Sense, right? I mean, just me, you yeah. know. And, and Lewis is just thinking, okay, I just need to get these people to Mars. You know, I need to. Yeah. You know, I don't really care. And the only, the only really, really terrifically unique thing he did there is the fact that he made it a sphere. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But the once he was done with that visual effect, that's right. He was done, and trying to put that in film, yeah, would be really difficult because yeah. you have a little ball and he's walking around. <laughs> yeah, that's walking right. around. That's it. right. It's fritzing on the Jim Jam. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But that's, it is remarkable to me that the same thing happens when you get to those other planets. Mm -hmm. There is no exploration of technologies, right. of, of right. anything. It's right. just right. we're here and it's about the people and about yep. their society and so on. That's always really. I think that's out where to me. Lewis is, Lewis is you know, his, his, some, his, some of his deepest concerns as a writer of fiction, I mean, as well as, uh, it seems to me that, that the way to characterize Lewis's theology is to say that he was more interested than anything else in theological anthropology. He did a lot of other things, yeah. but, but he's really trying to figure out what is a human being and, and, and what, does, what does Christianity say that a human being is? It seems to me that that's his most central question. And of course, that is the question that is raised over and over and over again in the Space Trilogy. And yeah. it's raised in a different way in The Great Divorce. I mean, it seems to me that he is just circling constantly around rival definitions of what it means to be a human being and what are the consequences of embracing one particular definition rather yeah. than the other. And uh, I mean, Tolkien has interests in that as well, but it seems to me that, that for Lewis, uh, technology would only be of interest insofar as it illuminated questions of anthropology, of what it means to be human. And yeah. I would really like to hear what he would have to say about that if he were around to speak now, of it today. Um, part, of what, part of what Lewis would say um, about the nature of being human is that Humans have to live in the house God built. Yeah. Um, the, the architecture of the cosmos mm -hmm. matters to him. Uh, he has the. Uh, yep. He has a short essay. That, of course, the discarded image, the whole cosmology of the of the space trilogy. Yeah. I, I remember one time. I don't know if it's in the current one, but in the New Bible Dictionary, I looked. I was looking up the host of heaven, and the ardor of the uh, writer of that article said was referring to the host of heaven as the stars and. Yeah, and said hmm. the uh, 
the cosmology um, that C.S. Lewis lays out in the Space Trilogy would have commended itself with a great deal of force to the biblical writers, mm -hmm. which is backwards, actually. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, the Bible conforms to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> now we know we can trust it, right? <laughs> um, so there's that. But I, um, I was curious, and I was, uh, I'm interested to... Um, to ask you this question, pursue it a little bit, and then bring it back to this question of mm -hmm. technology and, mm -hmm. and the, what Francis Schaeffer called the mannishness of man. What, yeah. is, what is a true man and so forth. But your book, The Narnian, uh, came out maybe two or three years before Michael Ward's right. Planet Narnia. Right, right. Um, uh, wanted to get your quick take on yeah. if you think Ward's onto something and uh, had the publication of the books been yeah. uh, in the different order uh, would how right. different would your book have been? Because it seems to me that Ward is pointing to this vast yeah. uh, conspiracy in Lewis's imagination, yeah. 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 which is what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, uh, uh, two uh, complicated responses. Uh, you, uh, I was sent actually when um, Michael had published a little um, um, a brief essay that appeared in a London newspaper that sort of outlined his his core idea and what he believed to be his discovery. Um, that came out in time for me to mention it in there. I essentially said, well, I don't know. Right. I have my doubts. There's, it's interesting, but I have my doubts. He wrote to me and he said, well, when you see the book, you won't have any doubts anymore. You know? And uh, so I waited for the book to, came out, uh, to come out. And when it did, I was, I was sent a copy um, and actually asked for a blurb on it. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and read it. And I don't know, I can't remember too many circumstances in my life when I had such a reversal of opinion. Because when I went into it, I thought, this, there's no way that this can possibly be true. And I had all of my reasons why I, I, I thought it couldn't possibly be true. And by the end of the book, I thought, you know, he's right. Mm -hmm. the, the seven books, the seven planets, the characteristics of each planet being woven into each book, yeah, it's absolutely right. It really is there. And it is kind of the fundamental structural principle of the Narnia tales. Uh, however, I don't think that explains as much as Michael thinks it does. That is, I think what he found is true. It's really there. People had missed it for 50 years. Lewis had hidden it carefully. All of those things I really do believe. Um, but I think Michael is inclined to make it, at, at least at times, sort of the, the universal solvent. You know, the, I mean, it, it, it answers all questions and resolves a, all problems. When you find a hammer, everything looks like yeah, a nail. Yeah, that's right. And so he's got, there, are lot, there are a lot of, uh, of you know, cosmological nails out there for him to hit with his, uh, his, his, his Narnian hammer. Um, but uh, and interesting, I think Michael's actually aware of that himself because he and, uh, and Rob McSwain have been putting together a Cambridge companion to C.S. Lewis. And they asked me to write the article on, um, on the Narnia books. And I said, well, shouldn't that be you? You know, Michael, I mean, aren't you the guy who should be writing about the, the Narnia books? And he said, no, I've become a monomaniac. <laughs> I need to turn this over to somebody else. <laughs> and so in, in my treatment of the Narnia books, I acknowledge the, the, the validity and the value of his discovery, but I don't make it the linchpin of my interpretation of those books. Okay. Well, let's take a, um, one of the things that Ward talks about is that, uh, and I think this is an area where we probably all agree, because you're emphasizing, you don't use the word donegality, Mm -hmm. the, right. the, the atmosphere of a place. Right. It seems to me, going back to the earlier point, that Lewis would say that man is what he truly is 
when he is in the right place. Right. It's, it, you, mm -hmm. he, he, we're not talking about right. spiriting man off into a, a, That's a, right. a, a dark room and then discussing right. what it is to be a federalist right. biped. Right. We're, right. we're saying you've got to be related to your people, your nation, mm -hmm. your country, the mountains over there, right. the stars above. Right. All of that right. is part of being right. human. Right. Would, would you say that this is a... Um, characteristic, this is one of Barfield saying what he thought about everything is contained right. in what he said mm -hmm. about anything. Um, it, it appears that if we're to define what it is to be truly human, mm -hmm. we, like John Calvin begins the Institutes by saying we can't know ourselves unless we know God, and we can't right. know God unless we know ourselves. Right. Would Lewis take a riff off of that and say we can't know ourselves until we know our world, and we can't yeah. know our world yeah. until we know ourselves? Yeah. Do you think that's a fair something very close to it anyway because you know there is a there is what one of his sterner moments in his apologetic writings is when he says you need to understand that there is no question of god creating a place that is adequate to you <laughs> you know that is it's not you 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 can't think of yourself as the given and then god then is supposed to shape an environment which you will find pleasing why Rat not because, yeah why not yeah <laughs> Why isn't there 3G over here? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hello, God. <laughs> but rather, he says, um, that the place has been made, and now you must be transformed so that you will be adequate to fulfill your role in that place. And I think place there is meant literally and in multiple levels of metaphoricity. I think for Lewis, uh, the, the, the image that I always go back to is one that I know was important to him. And it's, the, it's that really extraordinary moment that comes at the very end of Dante's Paradiso. I mean, as Dante has been climbing through the uh, paradise and has seen all of these people, th there's a, something that kind of bugs him. And the thing that, that bugs him is what feels like inequality. That is, he sees, well, you know, he meets Picarda, the nun who was inconstant to her vows, did not keep her vows faithfully, and she's kind of down here at the bottom, you know? And he says, how do you feel about that? I mean, don't you feel like, wow, you just kind of barely scraped in, and are you jealous of the people who have a higher place than you? And, and she and all of the people in her circle, circle of the moon, just kind of smile <laughs> at his foolishness. And, and she says, in, you know, what may be the most famous line in the Divine Comedy, in, in sua voluntate e nostra pace, in his will is our peace. You know, we are absolutely at peace because we know that we have been placed here. And then when Dante gets to the very top, after going through all of these hierarchies, he turns back and looks down, and instead of seeing hierarchies, what he sees is the great celestial rose with everyone having their appropriate place in God's design. And, and so the hierarchy is there, but hierarchy for Dante is less true than the vision of everyone being in the place uh, that was appointed for him or her in the cosmic design. And I think that's how Lewis thought. And I think he thought that if you do not know that place, if you do not understand it, then you have no chance of being able to be shaped and formed in such a way that you are worthy of it. And this goes back to in the discarded image. Mm -hmm. um, this book is not held to this table by gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. It's this book knows its station. Seeking right. its station. It, it right. seeks. It is see, it, where can I love God best? That's I can, right. I can find. I find my appropriate station, and that's not just limited to right. 
books, we we should seek our station yeah. and rejoice in them. And, and, and we should seek, we don't. And when we don't, what happens is that not only do we impoverish our station, but we cut it off from communication with all of the other places that are part of this design, which is, you know, what, what Ransom is so shocked to discover that there is this planet called the silent planet. You know, Thul Kandra's the silent planet. That's, that's us. You know, right. that we're the ones who's, uh, who's, uh, who have cut off our, our, uh, our El Deal, you know, the one who's supposed to have been our guardian and our protector has cut us off. And we have accepted the cutting off from all the rest of God's cosmos. But of course, God is not so easily defeated. And, and all of those forces begin to break through the walls that have been so carefully let built. Me, uh, let me uh, pick up on something and then maybe ask Nate to comment on this. Um, uh, in, this in the Space Trilogy, uh, Lewis uh, says as part of the setup for the story that uh, we're, these things, we're presenting it to the public in the guise of fiction. Right. You know, um, because we're talking about a weird universe right. That, right. that, if you know anything about it, it's the medieval universe trans, you know, filled out with modern knowledge of right. certain things, but it's right. the, in, a, in all its essentials, it's the medieval classic uh, mm -hmm. universe. And so he's, Of course, he would have just said, it's the universe. It's the yeah, universe. That's right. yeah, that's it's, right. it's the universe. Well, he, he was a master translator. Somebody yeah. once said that he yeah. made uh, righteousness readable. He, yeah. Yeah. he knew how to speak medieval yeah. to modern yeah. men. I mean, yeah. how, how could you have somebody so out of touch yeah. Uh, yeah. as yeah. C.S. Lewis, yeah. the, the last medieval man, the last right. Western man, right. be the most popular apologist and writer mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. 20th century? So 500 mm -hmm. years from now, people will be studying that right. century and and regarding C.S. Lewis as the quintessential representation right. of, yeah. of, of that century. Yeah. Picture of the 20th century is C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah, right. But the that whole is 20th century Christianity. <laughs> the, the whole time <laughs> he's tearing his hair out trying to right. translate. Right. Um, and I, I know, Nathan, as, you, as you're doing the screenplay for The Great Divorce, you're thinking about how do I say a bunch of weird things? How do I take <laughs> Lewis's vision and s state it to people whose cosmology is shaped by Star Trek? Um, yeah. yeah. How do you um, do? You have any thoughts on how you translate, and what cues would you take from Lewis on translating? You know, I actually I think that it's all back to Lewis. Honestly, wrote from his world. It wasn't mm. a worldview; it was a world. I mean, it was so fully enfleshed and so complete right. that he wasn't he wasn't actually even trying to import it. He wasn't trying to get it in. Wasn't a doctrine? No, he, he wasn't trying to get it in. It, it's like saying, how did Hemingway always write like a human? You know, <laughs> yeah. sort of like that's, yeah. how did he always manage to be human in everything he wrote? It's sort of because that's what he was. And Lewis was profoundly this way, belonged in this world, saw the world this way, and I think accurately this way. Mm -hmm. And then all of everything he touched mm -hmm. was, you know, part of that. So I don't think that he was intentionally saying, oh, I need to get this in, I need to get that in, although I'm sure there's yeah. plenty of moments like, yeah. you know, like that. But the, the most profound pieces, I think, are just right. flowing flowing in. It's pervasive. Yeah, it's pervasive. So whether you're writing, I mean, writing now is the same way. If, you, if you're writing a fantasy book for kids, which I do, then you are either one of those writers who just tries to make something up, 
Right. You try to conjure up a world, and you see if you can be consistent. With funny names. And yeah, yeah. And, and you see if you can be consistent, or you actually have a perception of this world as more fantastic than everybody gives right. the credit for, and you try to explore that and push it into its corners, which means it's coherent for you already. Yeah. And I think that's what Lewis was doing. I think, that, And you read, Till We Have Faces, people don't see that as easily in the same canon as right. Space Trilogy or Narnia, but it is. Sure it is. You know, it's the, it's, it belongs right there with it. The Great Divorce, Pilgrim's Regress, everything he touched. Yeah. You know, the, the younger he was, the, the more loose yeah. it was. It wasn't right. fully formed. Right. But the, every, every single thing he touched is an outworking of the world, of him as a human yeah. being yeah. and humans as you know, what he believed right. him to be. And I think Great Divorce is the same way. So working through that, it's just these people are human. Yeah. These people are yeah. real people, and he sees them in a way that Star Trek doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's that perception of humanity, not the set, you know, not the, the background that matters. It's the, the perception into the human soul. Reason yeah. is not the tipping point. There's, there's right. a lot of things there. That so would, would you say it's um, like someone said that a liar has to have a very, very good memory be because yeah. he's got to keep track of everything. Yeah. Right. Someone who's telling the truth, the truth takes care of the consistency for yeah, you. Right. Absolutely. And that's the comment on Ward's thing, and I think Ward's thing is amazing. But one of the reasons why I I don't think it's as all defining as as it, it, a lot of people think it is yeah. is because Lewis was not an, a very cautious, careful or intentional writer. Yeah. He did not care for foolish consistency the way Tolkien did. Right. He didn't care what the phases of the moon were doing. Right. You know, in this, in this part as of this told, planet, as, as he didn't care about how big the globe was on which Narnia existed. Right. He did not care. Right. He was like, and then it's, you know, he doesn't get into it, but then now it's, it's a flat world. Right. It's like, and he's, he feels free to just sort of introduce sure. things like, and hey. <laughs> that's you know, right. So like, here it is, and I love that, but that's also why I don't think that he had this micromanaging, detailed, right. overarching plan for it all. I think that he did it remarkably effectively. I think Ward's right. Yeah, but I think it was off the cuff. Yeah, him that's being who he was. The, point, that of all came the out. point of integration was not a mapped out story. He did not. He system. did not have a, an evil plan on a bulletin board. Right. He was who he was, and that worked its way out in a very natural and effective way. I think one of the one of the the um, uh, uh, sentences of Lewis is that I quote most often, and I quote this to my students a lot. Um, is uh, one of the essays in on stories where he's talking about writing fairy tales and yeah. writing stories for children. And, and he talks about all the people who wrote to him and said, well, what, what an incredible evangelistic tool these uh, stories of yours are. You know, please give me the 12 points that you follow <laughs> in order to write an incredibly effective evangelistic fantasy yeah. story. Yeah. You know, that's effectively really what they wanted. They wanted, what's the trick? You know, what's the yeah. trick that you're following? And, and, and Lewis says, you know, he says, first of all, I didn't write that way. Secondly, I couldn't have written that way. I'm just, you know, even if I'd tried, I'm yeah. just not wired like that. And, and he says, he has this wonderful passage where he says, really the only thing to do is to write what it is that your imagination gives you. And you will find that it will arise from whatever roots you have struck during the course of your whole life. Yeah. And that I think that's a really it's in, 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 in essence what he's saying is that there comes a point where you have to trust your own formation as a person, as a Christian, and as a writer. Which really bums people out because it means 
It means there's not a trick. Yeah, there's and, not a trick, and Lewis has just made that way. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> yeah, what you're saying. <laughs> Wait, you know, you mean I've got to be? You mean I've got to ride out of what I have? <laughs> what kind of trick is that? Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the old uh, of, of Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where where Calvin asks Hobbes, "Do you think that?" That uh, do you think you know who we are is defined by our inner lives or by what we do? And and Hobbes says, well, I think what we do reflects our inner lives. And Calvin thinks about it a minute and says, wait, I resent that. (laughs) (laughs) We treasure this idea, you know, that that we have some you know some some core of goodness inside us. But if we're told that we have to depend on whatever our formation is, and from that will grow whatever story we happen to have to tell. That's frightening. Here's, yeah. here's two uh, quotes. Uh, Tolkien once said that his imaginative world, he said, sprang up from the leaf mold of his mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. everything he'd read, all of his right. experiences right. Are, the, are the mold. It sprang up from the leaf right. mold of his mind. Right. And then a quotation from Bunyan says this in Pilgrim's Progress somewhere, but I remember being struck by it when Lewis was quoting it. Mm-hmm. Um, where he was starting to write Pilgrim's Progress, and then and Bunyan said, "And as I pulled, it came." Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, that's right. You know, there was something there, yeah. and I didn't organize right everything that was there to right. be pulled out. But right. as I pulled, it came. Right. Right. Yeah. And I he, think I think Lewis, honestly, the Narnia Chronicles, the Space Trilogy, everything he touched is just him right. loving the world, loving yeah. people. Yeah, the world he he saw and just doing it publicly and yep. you making up stories for it. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And I think in relation to that, you know, in in the the uh, first chapter or the preface or the introduction or whatever it is to the discarded image, where he's defining what he calls the medieval model, and he talks about the beauty, the power, and the coherence of it, and he says yes. And I know that modern readers are saying, well, yes, but it has this one defect that it isn't true, and and then he says that's right, it isn't true. And I, that's one of the few moments in Lewis's writing where I think he's lying. That is, in some sense, it isn't true. But in the most important senses, I think he believes that that medieval model is true, that it is the universe, right? Yeah, he's, and he's referring there to the, the physicality of it. That's right. The, the actual physical but, arrangement. That's right, the yeah. physical arrangement, but in a larger sense. And you know, so when, in the Space Trilogy, when he, when he posits this idea that each of the worlds is governed by an intelligence that is an angelic being whose eternal task it is, or as long as the, the, the worlds last, whose task it is to govern that, that world, I, th- I think he believes it. Yeah, I think he absolutely. absolutely believes that that's true. And I, I, I think he absolutely believes that if, 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 if not with absolute certainty, at least with a very strong likelihood of being true, that this was indeed the task of Lucifer, son of the morning, that he was to be our guardian mm-hmm. and he became our enemy. Right. And I, I really do think that, that Lewis does believe in a world which, if we can just be attentive, attentive to it, is, is saturated with the energies of those angelic beings. Really- and I think he was more attentive to it than most of the rest of us are. Yeah. And I think that that's where the power comes from. Yep. And so when people hear it, him tell these stories, they, they, res- uh, they respond to it. I, I decided to end the Narnian with a little story about one of his uh, pupils, Kenneth Tynan, who was about as different from Lewis as you could imagine someone being, and yet all of his life, whenever he read Lewis's work, he was just drawn towards it. And he said, you know, how vivid he makes goodness seem. You know, how powerful, how real. And, and it was, he, was, he was responding to this whole imaginative vision, and it, it just touched him and drew him. 
and you know it turns out that the old the old dinosaur as he called himself you know that this the last of the old western men is someone who who just continues to have that kind of effect on many readers well, let's talk for a moment about um film adaptation mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, Lewis says uh, in essays presented to Charles Williams mm -hmm. and I think he's got an, uh, Lewis has got an essay in there that shows mm -hmm. up elsewhere but mm -hmm. he, he talks about the I think he um, talks about King Solomon's Mines yeah. mm -hmm. and the the book version which he said you know scared him sideways and yeah. you know it was just great and then the film version where he's objected to it because they substituted the, a different kind of danger than the book had and had an extraneous woman in shorts. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't mind the, the woman in shorts as much as the different kind of danger. <laughs> yeah. he, he insulted the woman in shorts, but so, and, and the I, danger I, swap was the thing that really bothered yeah. him. I, well, I thought, I thought it was cool to imagine C.S. Lewis going to the movies. Yeah. Right? So he, yeah. he didn't see it. Probably on, smoking in the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, those were the days. He didn't see it on his VCR. <laughs> right. Uh, he, he went to a theater and he watched this thing. So, so he has some comments about film adaptation, and he, and he acknowledges there that the rules of a filmmaker's art are different right. than the rules of a, of a writer, and so he acknowledges mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. But when he was doing that, I'm sure that, when he was writing that, I'm sure that the thought of uh, film adaptations of the Narnia Chronicles, were, yeah. uh, or in The Great Divorce coming up, were clean out of his mind, right. and especially our capacity for special effects, all, right, just all, right. the, you mm -hmm. know, all of those things were just not uh, part of what he was thinking. That said, we've had um, a couple of Narnia movies out, mm -hmm. and another one coming. And I'm uh, from the school of thought where I'm, I consider an, a film adaptation of a Narnia story a success if it doesn't make me run downtown and shoot out all the streetlights mm -hmm. and, and get mm -hmm. arrested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. that was all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's not as bad. You made it through. You yeah, made it through. Yeah. All right, so uh, with all this qualification, what do you. Uh, what is your take on the Narnia films thus far? Would uh, what do you think Lewis would have thought? What do you yeah. what do you think? Um, is it nice tribe? Is it like productions of Shakespeare? Maybe in mm. five hundred years yeah. we'll be able to do a version that uh, does justice to it. What do you no, it, it's not going to happen. I don't think. Uh, I don't mind the Narnia movies. They don't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and I thought really hard about why that is. Um, and, uh, and I think this is the best answer I can give. Um, I, should, I should add, by, uh, first, that Lewis was not, I don't think he was intrinsically opposed to the adaptation. Of he did, there are some interesting letters in which he, he talks about the possibility of television or movie adaptation. The thing that terrified him was the thought of, Aslan being a, a man in a lion suit. That yeah. was just, I mean, he says that's unbearable to him, which is, of course, exactly what the BBC did, <laughs> you know, later was, on. And, and as a child, it was unbearable to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you could see I, the seams. I know, though I'm always <laughs> surprised. That was a vaudeville, was a vaudeville I, lion. You know, yeah, I know. It, when it keeps reminding me, I thought, you know what, it, Penn State's mascot has come out here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the Nittany Lion from Penn State who's shown up in, somehow in this BBC production. But, um, so I actually think that that the special effects of the film allow for a visual representation of Aslan that is far more adequate to the conception than anything that Lewis could have imagined in his time. So I think all of that... That's, I think, to, that's to the good. Yeah, that's to the good. And I actually think he might have liked the movies better than I do. 
Um, what, one of the things I've spent a lot of time thinking about is, you know, why do I like the Lord of the Rings movies so much more than I like the Narnia movies? And, and, and I don't I, know that we can be friends. <laughs> this may be yet right here. You're like, turn the table over and walk out. The discussion was way yeah. too boring. I, 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 think that, I, think that more, I think more of what Tolkien was doing is possibly converted into cinematic form. Less of what Lewis is trying to do is possibly converted into cinematic form. That's, Actually, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. And, and here's, here's the thing, I, I, I've come to believe, this is my theory for the day, or for the last year or two, maybe I'll drop it at some point. I've come to think that the one absolutely central, indispensable feature of the Narnia books that can't be converted into cinematic form is the authorial voice. Yeah. And there is a way that Lewis has of talking to children. And the example that I always give is the moment when uh, Aslan is dead, and Lucy and Susan are trying to console one another nearby, and and he ha he says something to the effect of, you know, I don't know whether you have ever been so sad that you cried until there were no more tears that could come, you know, but when that happens, mm -hmm. the emptiness you feel, and it's 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 a kind of a confessional moment. He's saying, I don't know whether you have been as devastated as Lucy and Susan were, but but I have been, and let me tell you, it's really, really horrible. And, and that, there's that sort of confidential tone, that way that he talks to children, like which an is uncle. like, like an, an uncle, but, but as someone who treats them as though I, I'm not condescending to you, I'm not speaking down to you. That, that tone is so central to the success of the Narnia books. And, and I don't know how that particular in narrative intimacy can be captured Unless you did it with voiceovers. And yeah, that's, and then, that, but, but that's not a very cinematic way of doing things, right, is right. it? You well, know? The, the thing is that, <clears throat> well, I think you're exactly right, but I think Lewis uses that device especially to diffuse intense situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he uses, he uses that second-person avuncular tone right. when he actually wants to do something that's quite dark yeah, for children. That might otherwise be too much for the yeah, kids. So yeah, so he steps on screen. Mm -hmm. you know, he, he steps yeah. into, the, into the story and sort of yeah. pauses and says something yeah. settling. Yeah. And, and I know people who object to also him saying th in, an, in a tense situation, mm -hmm. when Lucy was a very old woman, she would look back right. on the smoke. He does right. the same thing there. Like, right. She's not going to die. Right. <laughs> It's okay. He just says, yeah. not gonna die. Let's, right. let's keep moving. Right. Uh, and yeah. that is something that yeah. Hollywood absolutely does not want right. to do. They, they do not right. want to ever let go of any right. intensity right. and, at yeah. all. Yeah. I do yeah. think that if, if Lewis were alive and had veto power over film production, I mm -hmm. think we would have something that I would, I would mm -hmm. enjoy. Yeah. I think he would find any number of things objectionable I wouldn't even notice. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think it's possible, but yeah. film is fundamentally more transient. Right. It's it is like a stage, you know, it's a stage production, and it's yeah. fine. Right. So, are more kids reading the Narnia Chronicles now than yeah. before the movie started? And do any of them say I like the movies better? Probably a few of them, but a few. No, but, but uh, not many. Yeah, problems. Now, since <laughs> you since you began work on the Great Divorce, Nathan, um, I know that you've gotten letters from concerned. Yeah. Letters from concerned citizens. There's a folder. <laughs> <laughs> There's a special folder. Don't, don't you dare. Um, it, what, what's a common thing? Yeah, what, what do they uh, say? What do they say? Please do and please don't. <laughs> Whatever you do, this. don't do this. Or, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's people who have laid down rules for me, specific <laughs> rules and things I, 
and they don't say please don't. They say you may not. It's enjoyable, but uh, it's it's a very difficult one because it is episodic. It was written as a serial. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very unique. It doesn't have a a tangible protagonist right. in the same way the other stories do. Right. It's a really interesting one, but I I think that there's a lot of potential there to tell yeah. tell the same stories that Lewis was telling because it's about it's about people and it's right. about how people are and what they love and what they cherish and what they shouldn't love and cherish and what changes them. So right. yeah, that that's what it's about. So I I think this is this is a story that can be told on screen, mm-hmm. but. To be totally honest, like 50 years from now, I would expect the book to be living on, selling you know, hundreds right. of thousands, millions of copies, and somebody else would be saying, hey, let's make another movie. Right. Right. So the Narnia movies will get remade. There will right. be other theatrical right. or dramatic productions of those right. movies. That's the nature of that right. particular medium, and that's fine. So I don't think this is... The film of The Great Divorce is not going to be right. the single telling of The Great Divorce right. for all time, right. visually. Wonderful. I think that hopefully it will be powerful in the same way the book is. In as much as, as film can be, it's a, where you don't substitute the danger, you don't have a different kind. Yeah, of Yeah, you don't danger. substitute right. the danger, but right. but the the power of the book is that people can see themselves, yeah, in individuals and see these petty things that people are willing to be damned for. The people in hell are not in hell for, you know, horrible crimes right. against humanity. They're right. They're in hell because they can't let go of their artistic reputation. Right. They're. And then it, up in heaven, or what they think of as their love for their son or their yeah, son or their and then he and then he goes topsy turvy with hierarchies in heaven the same yeah, way Dante yeah. does. Yeah, right, right. Sarah Smith goes by and she fed cats at her back door. Right. This is why we have a parade. You know, right. So, so you know, we, we well, I was I was just thinking when I first when I first heard you know that the, that there was a treatment of the great divorce in process. I thought that that'll never work. And then I thought again, and I thought, you know, that could be actually a very actorly movie. That is, it's a movie that, with, with the right script and the right actors, because that's what it's really, yeah. a lot is going to depend on, yep. you know, people <laughs> saying these things. So have you, have you, have you uh, cast it in your mind? You know, have you, uh, you know, I actually have, and I've been in those discussions, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> so that's, that's one of the most fun, you know, every, every now and then, you know, when... Besides when Angelina Jolie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in whatever part she wants. Is that <laughs> Who is the devil? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Who has been introduced to this character? Get, get her, the, can she use the Beowulf costume again? The city, the city <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, it, there is that sort of you know sometimes when when you have uh, sometimes when I'm teaching books that I think of as having a certain kind of cinematic power to them you yeah. know uh, that I I'll, I'll I'll take a few minutes at the beginning of class and I'll say okay let's cast the movie of this you know let's figure out who should play this part you know huh. so I've been you know uh, and, and of course what happens it changes over the oh, years yeah. right as the actors get older yeah. you know 20, as they get old and die that's right <laughs> 25 years ago you know I mean I, I had my dream vision of, uh, of crime and punishment with Daniel Day-Lewis as Raskolnikov I thought okay he would be the best Raskolnikov yeah. possible you know <laughs> now he's in another stage of his career so I've got to find somebody else yes. but so I, I started you know having these kind of who, who would I want to play the tragedian <laughs> You know who would be good? Uh, yeah. Tragedian. Who no, would be good as? And and the hardest part will be the lady, right? I mean, because communicating just simple virtue and goodness. Well, that's actually I think you said the narrative voice in the Narnia Chronicles is the hardest thing. Mm. You know, taking Lewis to the screen. I think it's the fact that he was trying to build physical, tangible, material goodness. Yeah. Where Tolkien, his entire books are about badness. Right. And when he pictures goodness, it's a pub, 
a smoke and right. a song. Right. And that's easy. So right. pub, right. a smoke, and a song, a fire. Yeah. Real just like comfort yeah. food situation. Yeah. Yeah. But then we have extreme badness detailed right. over and over and over and over again. Yeah. So all this time on the Nazgul and so on. Right. And Lewis doesn't put that kind of time into Tash. Right. So he doesn't he doesn't focus in on the right. genealogies of, of right. battery and ram. Right. You know, that's right. He doesn't do it. <laughs> Instead he's trying to come right. up with a very simple yeah. Very profound description of something yeah. to to reveal its uh, realness, yeah. its goodness. He does that in Paralandra. Paral he does right. that, that hideous strength with, right. with Ransom and the the group at right. St. Anne's. Right. You know, it's like he he's trying to shape something right. that affects you, and the rhythm of words and metaphors, right. the music that can come right. mm -hmm. there, can be really powerful in a way that I think is going to be intensely difficult yeah. on screen. So I think that's yeah. where it's hard. Yeah. And that there's no question that that's going to be. What's difficult about the Great Divorce too? Right, is hell. I think is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun to see. I mean, and, you and, should go over the go over that and again. Compelling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hell's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, you plan to have first-hand knowledge, I see. But it's but, you know the telling the whole story. It's like yeah. well, the the that that's the great challenge of the story. And I think that any right. story that's easy to take to film, right, is probably going to be cheap and, yeah. and lacking value. It's going to be difficult. The director or the producers are going to have their yeah. Their hands full, and I think that's what makes the project so valuable. Yeah. But Lewis, I think in the screw tape letters, I think he comments on how easy it is to write down, you yeah, know, to write sin and temptation and grit. Yeah. In his commentary on Paradise Lost, he does the same thing. He's, right. he's, he tries to defend Milton's totally boring, terrible concoction that is right. Adam. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> what do you think? Tell us what you think. But yeah. in, as opposed to the right. intensely interesting character that is Satan. Right. So. You know, it, there's no question. The writing down is is easier. Corruption and fall is easier to write because we can more readily relate. But well, there's true goodness is, is yeah. much more difficult. Well, there's a great there's a great uh, passage in one of Auden's essays where he's talking about Don Quixote and how at the end of the story Don Quixote has to give up this fictional identity and and resume again being plain old Alonzo Quijano, <laughs> and uh, and and uh, Auden says that this is this is you know the most devastating and total kind of self-abandonment because what you were abandoning is what for many of us and he and he says and especially for artists is dearer to us than anything else and that is being interesting that is this the mm. sin of being interesting yeah. that that uh alonzo quijana has to put aside and uh <laughs> and that's a really um that's a powerful and disturbing word right because yeah. you know I, I don't think you're going to get anywhere by saying well I'm writing this screenplay. I'm trying to avoid this movie being interesting because I think that would be, you know, I, mean, I don't think that's going to go very well, right? Well, that actually, it, and as long as we're talking about movies as opposed to yeah. the great divorce, but yeah. when you watch particular types of film that, that some people just say, oh, it glamorizes evil or something yeah. like that, it's not just that it glamour, it's, it's not like it's trying to make it shiny and, right. and hip. Sometimes it does. Right. But the dark character, right. the tortured character, the right. character who does really intensely questionable things. Right. Uh, it's easy to play that edgy music and make him sure. compelling. Uh, the guy who's doing the right thing right. all the time. Right. Well, riveting on screen. Right. Uh, right. So, so there's no, there's no doubt that evil is. He went to work. Evil is just made more. Evil's made more interesting. Evil is made more interesting. Sure. On, on, on screen. And this is why you know Kierkegaard talks about the night of faith as being sort of indistinguishable from anyone else. You know, he says, I keep trying to look at him and see if there is a kind of, you know, does the transcendent shine through him at some point, you know, when I'm, uh, if I look at just the right angle, you know, but no, he seems to be solid all the way through, you know, well, yeah. 
I'm afraid that's the case because it says someone once said a long obedience in the same direction, right? This well, let's, uh, yeah. uh, let me talk about that for a minute and then we can uh, maybe take this and run this one out to the end. Uh, we were talking about the great divorce. One of the great themes of what makes people people is the theme of repentance. Mm -hmm. If every, everybody comes down to the intersection and they've got to decide, re repent or not repent, turn, mm -hmm. you know, forget themselves or, uh, or return to total self-absorption mm -hmm. and the exclusion of all others. Right. Sartre's conclusion, hell is other people. Right. You know, that's... Uh, so so that's, the hell is Sartre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you've got uh, re repentance as this con constant theme, but the same thing shows up in the Narnia stories where, you know, Eustace Scrub is comes right. down to the point and Jill comes to the stream and, right. she, you know, they... Um, he doesn't have a romantic, idealistic view of children. Right. He, he understands that they're of the stock of Adam. It's right. striking how often he says that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, explicitly says that they're children right. of Adam. So if you have this, um, uh, this it's Barfield again, what he thought about everything is mm -hmm. contained in what he said about mm -hmm. anything. These, these people, it, it, right. it always comes down to this, um, this question of repentance, to this question right. of turning. Uh, what would you say is is Lewis's um, uh, Lewis's understanding of humankind made new? Mm. You know, mm. uh, humankind. Well, it's salvation, it's death and resurrection, repentance, right. and salvation. Right. But that appears to be a constant thing. And since he's writing mm -hmm. about the humanity of man, it's mm -hmm. not just a what do you what do you, what magic formula do you say in order to go to heaven when you die? Right. But what do you have to do to start becoming a real person? Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I think Lewis is very Augustinian on this score. And I think that there is a kind of, um, there is a kind of, um, in many ways, a modesty to Augustine's account, um, is, as for Augustine, which Lewis, I think, picks up on. You know, for Augustine, there's, Augustine says, caritas is the motion of the soul towards God, right? And, and whereas cupiditas, the opposite of caritas, is the motion of the soul in on itself, right? I mean, it, those are your only options. And, and, and I think Lewis picks up on that, and he sees that it's, it's in many ways such a simple matter of just orientation. That is, what, what matters is the direction you're pointed. Look, Not so no, much as where you are. Not so much where you are, because let's face it, between now and the end of our lives, we're not going to make much progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the great, even the, the Sarah Smith of Golders Green has not made much progress in her life compared to the progress that she will make, yeah. right? right? So none of us gets very far, right? But the question is, as he puts it in the weight of glory, he says, look, if we were able to see ourselves in our ultimate natures, our identities, so we would either see something that is such as we encounter in nightmares, if at all, or we would see something so glorious that we would be tempted to fall down on our knees and worship it. Those are the only two, those are the only two options. We're a long way from achieving either of those complete and perfected statuses. So the real question is, which way are we pointing, right? Which way are we pointing? And I think what Lewis wanted in all of his work over and over again was to make you know, he, 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 one of the chapters of Reflections on the Psalms is called, is from the psalm that refers to the fair beauty of the Lord. And I think what Lewis wanted was to make people see in other people the fair beauty of the Lord 
so that it would be desirable, and they would turn towards it. And you see the same thing in uh, the same thing only recalibrated in Tolkien, right? Like uh, Lewis has the people who are becoming what they ought to be. He's got them further down the road, right? And right. Tolkien has got the Gollumization of, right. you know, he he does that right. in a terrifying way. Right, right. Um, and Tolkien is able to make something like going to heaven sad. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, let's <laughs> all go the down the melancholy, right here. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Endless, yeah. endless Celtic right. twilight. Right, right, right. And right. you say, uh, you know, I, I'm reminded of Chesterton's comment about the Irish where he said, all their uh, all their wars were happy and all their loves were sad. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but but it seems to me that be the same yeah. intersection. Tolkien's got people going too far. Right. It's a fundamental right. Christian vision. Right. 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 Two directions ultimately. Yeah. yeah. And Lewis has got a more positive vision of the good. Much more same, positive, but it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And I just want to say Tolkien's task is a lot easier than Lewis's. And um, we we come uh, uh, whenever I teach, I come across this problem whenever I teach That Hideous Strength, which I think is one of the boldest and most courageous books that I know of, but a very hard one for some people to read and to receive properly, because the, one of the really you know, frustrating or difficult or sort of cringe-making things in that book is the way that Jane Studdock responds to Ransom. That is, what she sees Mm -hmm. is a man who is in the process of, he's undergoing what the Orthodox would call theosis. That is, I mean, he is, he is being divinized right before our eyes by his obedience and his intimacy with God and with God's messengers, right? And because she has virtually no Christian training or background, doesn't know what going, she doesn't going know on. what her, she can't understand her own attraction to that. Yeah. And so to her, it becomes this kind of, you know, wanting to throw herself at his feet, which seems kind of servile and sexual and all sorts of other things at the same time that aren't really what it is. But and Ransom says, stop it. And Ransom, yeah, and yeah, Ransom yeah. understands, because he knows her and he understands, no, you're actually not ready even to understand what your response to me is yet. Very difficult for young women to read that passage and to receive it as, 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 as what I think Lewis wanted it to be. And I think it's probably an artistic failure. That is, it probably doesn't work as well as it should, but what an extraordinary thing to attempt to do. Mm -hmm. What an extraordinary thing to say, I'm going to throw all of the, that I've got into the attempt to show what a human being looks like when he is intimate with God and obedient to God to the point that the fair beauty of the Lord can be seen in him. It's the vision yeah. you were talking about in The Way to Glory. Yeah, Jane, exactly. Jane sees a glimpse of that. She sees a, and, and uh, she doesn't know what it is, but she knows that it is immensely attractive to her. And Eros and Agape get kind of mixed up there, yeah. as they would. And I think that I, I would argue that it's not artistic failure there at all. Okay. But there is a degree to which, when, I, when I've worked through the same book or talked to them, yeah. I, I think it's the greatest novel written in the English language. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like it's, it's right up it's there. amazing. But, but with that one, with that scene in particular, which is one of the roughest, right? He can't really communicate yeah. no. in, in just a raw description right. of ransom. That's right. Being who we are, you can't just really communicate. This guy who lives in the in the spheres has been in the spheres, is fed right. by angels, right? And is gonna pull an Enoch. Yeah, that's right. Like that's that's no. how it's gonna go. You can't do it. No. And you show the reaction. Well, Jane is actually kind of our representative yeah. there, right? I mean, she's the one. Yeah. And I think maybe here's the way that I would put it. I would say maybe it doesn't work because as maybe when it doesn't work, 
it wor it doesn't work because we as readers aren't ready for it. Right. Maybe like, that's what. Like so James, that's that's like, exactly like what I, yeah. That's what I would argue. Yeah. But I think that it's actually the places where he does give us details mm -hmm. that cause hiccups. So yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. I've seen female readers say guys are willing to believe anything. Characters that are like sure that's what she did. <laughs> right. But female readers who, yeah. who would say. What I would I would never do that, and right. because he he has a beard, right? Well, like right. it's yeah, like I don't like beards, so right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's not the point. No, that's, that's not, not the point. So yeah. in some ways, Jane I, isn't thinking about his beard. Yeah, I, I think that there he would be forced if he wanted everybody right. to buy it. He'd be forced to actually show even right. less right. of ransom. Yeah, uh, and in that case, I I think it's good that he showed what he showed. But there are people who. For whatever reason, aren't going to be willing to suspend right. their own yeah, that's right. personal attractiveness so can, or attractiveness yeah, to that's guys right. with foot injuries. Right. <laughs> so. And long golden flowing <laughs> beards. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it's, I, I think we can maybe agree then that there is, in some of those scenes, there is a, a possible disconnect between between the author and the reader yeah, no, there. No and question. the question is how you're going to account for that. Yeah. The other thing, incredibly, I just want the, the, the emphasis I want to make is what an incredibly courageous thing that was for Lewis just <laughs> to try to do. You I know? know. Yeah. Because it's not, it's, I mean, what, what Tolkien does with Gollum is absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think it's necessarily brave to make Gollum. Right. You know, no. but it, but to to try to make Ransom someone who is like still Ransom and yet being transformed that's that a really brave thing to do. Yeah. And then you put it in the structure of the, that hideous strength where the whole book is divided between Mark and Jane. Right. Mark with a perpetual lust to get right. in the inner ring. Right. He wants in. Always right. wants in. Right. And Jane wants out. Right. Jane is always prickly from the beginning. And, and by the way, in that sense, it's very much like Lewis. Right. That yeah. is, she shares Lewis's temperament. Leave it's not alone. Mark. Yeah. 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 I just well, wanted to be left alone. Yeah. 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 So she and loses this, temperament and loves. I mean, right. She's studying. Yeah. That's right. And it's, and it's striking that she, when she, um, gives herself to ransom that way. Right. What what that represents? She it's yeah. it's blind. She doesn't know. She doesn't understand. Right. But it's a fundamental reversal right. of where she's been. That's right. It, it's an antidote to what her problem was. Just as Mark's refusal to that's tram right. trample on the crucifix. Right. Yeah. Is his turning yeah. point. Yeah. And I think you know I I think that you can. <clears throat> There, I, I always end up making students read three other things when they read that hideous strength. Um, I think you have to read the abolition of man, yes. along with the hideous that hideous strength. But then you also, I think, have to read the inner ring and membership, yes. because those are really the, because what what Mark experiences is the lust for the inner ring and the corruptions that go along with the inner ring. So the inner ring that essay is actually a a commentary or an address is actually what it originally was, is a commentary on Mark's half of the story. But what is being offered to Jane in St. Anne's. At St. Anne's right. is membership. Right. right? It's not it's the opposite of the inner yeah. ring. Uh, you can uh, you can leave anytime you want to, you can abandon it, you can have nothing to do with them. That's fine. In fact getting in is a lot harder than getting out. Right. Um, and, and so it's an account of membership as opposed to the inner ring, and I think those are just beautifully balanced and yes. contrasted. And Mr. Bultitude is a full-fledged <laughs> member. He is a full-fledged <laughs> member, you know. He can do what he wants in the kitchen. He can do what he wants <laughs> as the kitchen, you know. Uh, more of a, by the way, more of a full-fledged member than McPhee. 
Yep. Right? I mean, that is, there are restraints upon McPhee that there are not upon Mr. Baltitude. McPhee right. is one of the, I think, the most interesting characters. Oh, he's absolutely that, fascinating. That Lewis plays with. It's yeah. the same. It's the same thing to me as right. the boldness of writing Ransom comes out again in I think I think that's exactly and right. And there's something, of course, it's an act of generosity towards his old tutor, yeah. uh, the great Nock. But it's a beautiful image, I think, of, of God's relation to the unbeliever. Because as long as McPhee wants to be there, he can be there. Right. He can yeah. be there. But there are certain roles which he will not be given. <laughs> yeah. Because no, much, no matter how much he wants them, um, and he's not given them not as punishment, but because, as Ransom tells him, you, you don't get, have protection. You get smoked. Yeah, yeah. You are you are not up for this fight. You know, and you may think you are, but trust me, you would be in way over your head if you fought these enemies. And it's it's out of kindness and affection for him, and a hope that he will ultimately come around. That's I think that's a remarkable. Uh, do you, when you assign this to your students, do you make them read the first two as a run up, or do you just? I have done both. Okay. I've done both. Um, and in, in, the problem is, if in the classes that I teach, uh, having them read the whole Space Trilogy and the Abolition of Man, and, you know, I mean, I, I'm usually not doing a Lewis class. I'm usually doing it in relation to other books. And okay. so it's hard for me to, to get everything in to there. To piggyback everything. I tend, yeah, I tend to do too much anyway. So Well, uh, we're out of, out of uh, time, so let's bring this in for a landing and let's conclude with this uh, mm -hmm. favorite Lewis book, favorite Lewis book, favorite Lewis book. Oh, that's so hard to say. That is so hard because I have favorite ones in different genres. Right. I say in that I'll stand by what I say in that book, which is I think the best book that Lewis ever wrote is the uh, his O Hell book, the uh, history of English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. I, I I think that is the most perfect of his books. Well, he had something to prove. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I you know I have to go with that hideous strength. Yeah. There's there's no question. I think it's the culmination. It's the capstone to everything he did in Narnia. As mm -hmm. well as the previous two in Space Trilogy, Discarded Image, Experiment and Criticism. I mean, he gets in his English lit comedy. He does, yeah. He gets in his, his Arthurian theories. He gets, I mean, he manages yeah. to get everything in. Yeah. Well, uh, acknowledging everything you say about the genre difficulties, yeah. you know, I would go with that hideous strength, too. But we win. We win. If it were a vote. But I was the away team. If it were a vote. But that's only if it's democracy yeah. is true. And yeah. Lewis was deeply <laughs> suspicious yeah. of democracy. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.